This is the 127th sermon in Matthew. Sometimes I'm convicted that we're moving so quickly because there's so much here. Uh, in our first church, I was invited to, uh, to join the local ministerial association, and I went to a lunch, and I met some of the pastors who were in town, and, and I was brand new to all of this. I just graduated from seminary, and I'm, I'm planning out all of this for the first time, and I'm always eager to learn, always eager to, to meet those who do this, and, and uh, so I, I asked different people what they were preaching, and there was one man who said he was in Matthew, and I said, oh, where, where are you at in Matthew? He says, I'm right in the middle of the Beatitudes. And I said, oh, how long have you been preaching Matthew? He said, five years. So it hasn't taken me uh, 250 sermons to get 21 chapters. So we're, we're, we're doing good. Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 18, we read, Now in the morning when Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and be cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things that you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This, this feels like a strange little interlude in the Gospel of Matthew. At the end of chapter 20, Jesus leaves Jericho. He heals two blind men. Then he uh, goes into Jerusalem and the triumphant entry from, from Jericho. It's a walk of about 20 miles. It would have been uh, a, the, the full morning. Uh, acclaimed as the king who was coming. He went into the temple and he cleared it out of those who were abusing it and defiling it, selling animals and exchanging money and ripping people off. The blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The chief priests and scribes came to him. They saw the marvelous things which he had done, the cleansing of the temple and the healings. And they heard the, the voices of children shouting out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were deeply offended and they, they asked him kind of rhetorically, do you hear what these children are saying? And the implication is that they expected him to shut them up. And Jesus answered them with another question, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany that was just a, two or three miles perhaps to the east, spent the night there. This tremendously significant day with the triumphant entry, we're going to be looking at that in more detail next week, next week's Palm Sunday. And now he comes back. He sees this fig tree by the side of the road, and, and we've got this weird little episode. And it's always kind of struck me as kind of an, just an odd place. And this is why I love the Word of God. I've been studying for many, many years, and I've been a pastor for 30, and you learn things every time. You learn things every time. 
And what I realized this week, really for the first time, was how significant the fig tree was to the people of Israel as part of a sign of God's blessing and God's favor upon them. We, we even heard it as, uh, as Adam was reading this morning as part of God's judgment upon Israel. There was a, a, a devastation to fig trees. So I, I want to talk first about just blessing judgment and restoration from an Old Testament point of view and the way the fig tree uh, figures into that. There are many, many more verses. It, it, I spent, you know, the, the, there's two hard things to do. The first hard thing is to write a sermon in the first place, and then the second hard thing is to take a razor blade through it and, to it and get rid of the stuff that just isn't going to fit in 35 minutes. But the fig tree was an emblem of God's blessing Going back as early as Deuteronomy chapter 8, for Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land of vines and fig trees. It's interesting that vines and fig trees go together so often in the Old Testament, uh, when when the only thing mentioned is vines and fig trees it's it's as though those authors later on are calling the reader back to Deuteronomy 8 saying this isn't just grapevines and fig trees this is all of God's blessing this is just a shorthand way of referring to it but fig trees also come into pictures of judgment so Jeremiah 5.17 says that when Assyria invaded which they were right about to do they would devour your vines and your fig trees the Old Testament scriptures, as I said, frequently join grapevines and fig trees to represent God's blessing. And the loss of them is as the, 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 uh, the judgment of God against Israel for their unfaithfulness. <coughs> there's blessing and there's judgment. But then there's a promise of restoration. In Micah chapter 4, the first four verses say this, Now it will be in the last days. The mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and be lifted up above the hills, and the people will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come and let us go to the, up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples, and will render decisions for mighty, distant nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. That hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. That is a promise in Scripture that is as yet unfulfilled. And I believe that that promise will be as literally fulfilled as the promise that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be called a Nazarene, that he would be pierced for our iniquities, that he would, he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as the scriptures foretold. So Yahweh used the fig tree to describe his initial blessing upon his people. He used the loss of fig trees as a sign of his judgment, and he uses the restoration 
of, of all good things, vines and fig trees included, to uh, describe the end of time. When all things have come and gone, when all mankind comes to worship and is instructed by him, when his word goes out, when peace is finally established, there will be a superabundance of blessing in that time, and it will never stop. We haven't seen that fulfillment yet, as I said. So now when we look at these words, let's think about them in light of, of the scriptures. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. Now, fig trees kind of left alone to grow will grow 20 feet, 30 feet high, 20, 30 feet across. They're big trees. They're big trees. Figs are not like lemons or oranges where you can stand off at a distance and say, I see fruit. A a lemon or an orange stands out like a sore thumb in all those trees. Fig trees tend to blend in. And so when Jesus sees this lone fig tree on the road and he goes to look at it and finds nothing on it except leaves only, you know that he has not just given it a quick glance, he's explored it. He's looked at all the branches that he can see. Maybe he's gone underneath the canopy and he's looked up and he has seen nothing on it. Now what's interesting with figs is that the fruit begins to grow before the leaves begin to grow. And when a fig tree is fully leafed, the fruit's ripe and ready. It, it's, a, it's an advertisement of abundance and fruitfulness. A fig tree that is, is in full leaf is advertising its own health. This tree is a lie. This tree is a lie. It's nothing but leaves. It's fruitless. It's barren. And so Jesus does this odd, shocking thing, and he curses it. No longer shall there ever be any fruit on you. It's as though he says, as you were. Remain as you have been. Nothing is going to change about you now. You'll just stay in this state. At that moment, the fig tree withered. And at once the fig tree withered. Now the Gospel of Mark says that when they came back the next morning, they could see that the tree had dried up from the roots. How do we reconcile those two pictures? This is what I think could have happened. Jesus pronounces this this curse upon it, and as soon as he speaks, the leaves begin to yellow and curl up. And that process continues overnight, and as they come by in the morning... It's dried up from the roots. It looks like it has been dead for decades. We're, we're coming into a time now when trees are beginning to bud out. If you, if you drive, you look off, it's just really weird how you can see those tiny little things on the trees. But, but two months ago, there was none of that. And northeastern Nebraska and much of the state, probably much of the reason, region, looked like it was just dead and occupied by nothing but dead trees. But, of course, there's a difference between a tree that's dormant during the winter and a dead tree. If you go up to a dead tree, it's obvious that it's a dead tree. It might be hollowed out. Branches might be splitting off. The trunk itself might be cracked open. You can tell there's no life in there. 
And that's not what's described here. What's de- or that is exactly what's described here. It's not the winter tree that's just dormant. It's the dead tree. Most of Jesus' parables were stories that he told. This is a living parable. This is a word picture that's actually carried out right in front of them. It's a visual object lesson. Every Jew knew that that abundant fig trees were a sign of God's blessing and a sign of God's promise. They all knew that a dead, withered fig tree was a sign of God's judgment. I found at least two dozen references to, to judgment against vines and fig trees. And on the other hand, when God restores his favor, an abundance of vines and fig trees. This was a familiar figure to them. What does the parable signify? Parables always signify something. What does the parable signify? That Israel was dead and barren. That Israel was fruitful or fruitless. As impressive as Israel was at the time, it was nothing but leaves. This same week, when Jesus takes his disciples from the upper room and they go to the Mount of Olives to pray, before his arrest. Presumably they're walking through the, uh, through the temple. And Jesus begins speaking about being the vine and being the branches. And Herod had had grapevines and, and bun- bunches of grapes carved on the temple that he had rebuilt. They'd already at one point praised the temple. Look at this. Look at how marvelous this is. And perhaps they did it again that night. And Jesus says to them, I am the vine. I'm the true vine, not the temple, not even Israel. I am the true vine. Just within days, this takes place. But Israel's fruitless. Jesus at one point calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. That's a picture of Israel. Now, by the mercy of God, some believed. And some would say, well, Israel was not completely unfaithful. The disciples believed. Yes, absolutely. There's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. My wife does sewing projects. I do, at times, woodworking projects. Both of us know what remnants are. Remnants are those little pieces that are kind of too big to throw away, but not big enough to use. And so you throw them in the corner, and maybe at some time you'll find a use at them. That's what remnant means. When God saves the remnant, he's not saving the whole with just a few being lost. When God saves the remnant, it means that the whole thing is gone, but he's going to spare these few. So uh, he has 11 disciples. He has Mary and Martha and Lazarus. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Joanna. There's the wife of Clopas. There's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who come to bury Jesus after he's been crucified and presumably by that point were were believing in him. After his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. 500 Christians. But what's five or six or 700 in a nation of two or three million? It's a remnant. By the mercy of God, there was a remnant. Israel as a whole was dead and barren and under the judgment of God. It was all leaves and no figs. Or if you like this from Texas, all hat and no cattle. 
There's just nothing there. We begin to see, maybe you begin to see, although I haven't explained it, so why would you? Why is this little odd narrative here? Because as the chapter continues, and it continues into Matthew 22 and 23 and 24 and 25, this idea of Israel being a barren fig tree under the judgment of God is just constantly a theme. As Jesus talks about the end times, as he talks about the destruction to come, as he talks about the grief to come, the need to escape, as he talks about the hope of restoration in the future, it's all built around this picture. So the Spirit of God, when he was prompting Matthew to write, and Mark as well, they both talk about the fig tree, is putting this here, especially for Jews, who would realize the significance. Luke is writing for a Gentile. He doesn't include it. John doesn't include it. He's writing 60 years later for Gentiles. But Mark and Matthew have special significance to Jews because of the the saturation with the Old Testament scriptures and the fulfillments. Well, the disciples are blown away by this. How did the fig tree wither all at once? And people often make a mistake here. They, they, they take verses 21 and 22 and they lift them out of context and they make them some odd little promise and teaching about prayer as though they existed all by themselves. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things that you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. Our confidence that scripture is God-breathed won't allow us to do that. We can't just rip things out of context and put them back together again in a way that suits us. We have to take them as they are. What amazed the disciples was the sudden change over the fig tree. That it began to curl and yellow, perhaps, in some way wither before their very eyes. And the next morning, just overnight, it was just dead, as though it had been dead for decades. Historically, this is a picture of what's happening to Israel. Forty years later, the Roman military laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed it along with the temple. Here's the 62nd version of what happened there. In 66 AD, the Roman procurator stole 17 talents of precious metals from the temple treasury. That'd be about 1,130 pounds. What could we do with 1,130 pounds of silver? Gold would be better, but silver would be good. The Jews responded by opening, rebelling against his authority. They went on the attack. Herod II fled the city. Eventually, they captured the Roman garrison, and they changed the pro- chased the procurator out. The governor, the military commander of Syria, rather, brought in the Syrian legions, and the war was on. Several years of hostility passed. And then in 70 AD, just before Passover, Titus, who was later named emperor, surrounded Jerusalem with three legions. That's about 15,000 soldiers. And they began to take the city back piece by piece. In late August, the temple itself was set aflame and burned. Josephus, the Jewish historian, blamed it on the Jews. The Jews burned the temple. I think that's very doubtful. 
Josephus was trying to accommodate. The flames spread to the city, and the city was consumed. By September 8th, the dates are, are, are pretty accurate. By September 8th, Rome is in complete control. Any Jews who have not fled are dead. There were no living Jews in Jerusalem. And within a few months after that, Jerusalem itself was a wasteland. If you've seen pictures of the tornado damage in Mississippi, think of that. But Israel had been so strong. The Herods had the favor of the Caesars. The temple itself was just completed in 66 AD. An an 80-plus year building project, a huge amount of money invested in it by the Herods. Far more impressive from a physical standpoint than Solomon's temple, I think, ever was. All leaves. No fruit. How did the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus' words about moving mountains join up? Well, simply put, all things are possible for God. Jesus was able to instantly wither the fig tree because all things are possible for God. God was able to bring about the destruction of of, uh, Israel or uh, of, of Jerusalem and the temple because all things are possible for God. When we come to the Father in faith, looking for salvation and sanctification and mercy and kindness, calling upon him to move the mountain of our old nature, nothing is impossible for him. Keep in mind, too, that for the disciples... Until they had actually put their faith in Jesus Christ, they were all at risk of being fruitless fig trees. All leaves, no fruit. What made the difference? Is it that they were smarter or holier or more humble? No, of course not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. They were fruitful because nothing is impossible for God. They were fruitful because the Holy Spirit gave them faith to believe in Jesus as Lord and Christ, the Son of the living God. They were fruitful because the Father had chosen them and given him life in his Son. They were fruitful because nothing is impossible for God. We might look at financial issues and family issues and political turmoil as the mountains that we face. They are nothing compared to the mountains of our old nature. And of sin and guilt. The more we grasp our own guilt before God, the more we understand our need for a Savior, the more we understand how impossible it is for us to help ourselves. 200 years ago or so, Europeans began traveling, trapping. This is not yet the time of farmers. They traveled across the Great Plains, and at some point they, they looked off to the west and they saw this, this low rise of hills. And every day brought those rocky mountains a little bit closer, and those mountains grew greater and greater and greater in their sight. And you have to think, the time came when every one of them looked at that and thought, how on earth do we get through that? At first, it's no big deal. Look how low they are. Look how smooth they are. But when you get close, you realize how impossible it really is.
I remember in a documentary about the Navy, a master chief on an aircraft carrier is talking to the other chiefs on the boat, trying to get them encouraged to go lead these 5,000 seamen on board of this carrier. And he says, you have to trust me. You have to trust me that when you get when I give you orders, I know what's going on and I know what you're capable of. If I tell you that a puppy can pull a stream ta- steam train, you don't ask any questions, you just hook him up. We've got to go to our God with the mountains of our old nature. In a sermon called The Withered Tree, Charles Spurgeon preached. This was in September 1889. On this passage, Nothing but leaves is nothing but a lie. If we profess faith and have no faith, is that not a lie? If I profess repentance and have not repented, is that not a lie? If I unite with the people of God in worship and yet have no fear of God in my heart, is that not a lie? If there is nothing but leaves, there is nothing but lies, and the Savior sees that it is so. How much fruit is necessary for a Christian? Some fruit. Some. We we can't get more specific than that. We must not fall into a legalistic trap of saying Christians produce this, and three of these, and a dozen of those, and half a dozen of those. Some fruit. Some fruit. Jesus says in John 15, the Father removes fruitless branches. And he's looking for fruit within us. What's that fruit? Well, it's not hard to figure out if you take the whole of Scripture into consideration. It begins with faith in Christ. That's exactly the description that John gives us. John uses different language in John chapter 1. He says that Jesus came to the world which he had made, and it did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The Gentiles didn't recognize him because they had no idea what they were looking for. Israel didn't receive. Nothing but leaves. The Father is looking for the work of the Spirit within us, saving faith in Christ. That saving faith in Christ sets the foundation for the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is the character of Christ produced in us. And if I can abuse the metaphor, the fruit of saving faith and the fruit of the Spirit becomes deep, rich soil for godliness, holiness, love of the word, worship, service, and all other aspects of good works. If we set our eyes on godliness, holiness, love of, love of the word, going to church, giving, if we set our eyes on that and say that's the fruit, then how do you know it's genuine fruit? How do you know it's actually been produced by God? How do we know that we're saved by grace and not by those works? It's because genuine fruit is faith in Christ and the character of Christ produced in us by the Holy Spirit. And out of that just very naturally comes every other good work. How much fruit is necessary for a Christian? Some fruit. How much fruit does the Father desire? Again, in John 15, more. 
Every branch that bears fruit, John writes, he prunes that it would bear more fruit. If you're like me, you see the word prune and you see the word punish. I'm doing what I can. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm doing this. I'm doing the best that I can. And then he punishes me. Pruning is not punishment. Pruning is purification. Pruning is purification. See, ultimately, the fruit that God desires of us is Christ-likeness. And until we are exactly like Christ, we need further sanctification and purification. Now, we naturally fear the Father's pruning work. It's understandable. He doesn't come to us and celebrate and affirm our identity as so many have falsely are assuming in our time. In fact, he rejects everything about us that does not reflect his son. That's because Jesus, who is the son of man, is the epitome of what it means to be a godly human being. Jesus is the model of holiness and blamelessness. He's the standard. He is the exemplar. Think about a sculptor who takes a series of pictures and begins to carve and is making constant reference to those pictures or a painter who works from a photograph. Jesus is the original and the spirit of God is transforming us into his image and anything that is not Christ comes off. We shouldn't fear the father's pruning work. We should welcome it. And I think the biggest reason for that is that the Father's pruning work is Trinitarian in nature. So in love, the Father predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, choosing us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless is another way of saying Christ-like. Jesus is the example. The Father chose us so that we would be transformed into the image of his Son. So tell me, as you look at the life and character of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, is there anything you don't admire? Is there anything in him unworthy? Is there anything in him that's despicable? Would you really say that you'd rather have your character than Christ's? So the father who chose us to be holy and blameless... And the son who is the picture of that holy and blamelessness sent, or holiness and blamelessness, sent the Holy Spirit to bring about this transformation in our lives. The spirit who came like a dove. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead and gives life to us. The spirit of truth. The spirit of holiness. The spirit of promise. The spirit of grace. The spirit of glory. That spirit. That's the spirit transforming us will the spirit's work be uncomfortable for us yes always if it's not uncomfortable it isn't happening at times it's even painful but he only works that which the father desires and which the the son exemplifies there's nothing about you that he removes that can be found in christ And everything produced in you by him is found in Christ. Let's bring this back in this last moment. 
If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast, to the sea, cast into the sea, it will be happened. And all things you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. So why not take the mountain of that old dead nature and ask the Father to throw it into the sea? Why not take the mountain of your weakness and your doubt and ask the Father to throw it into the sea? Why not take the, the questions that you have and the rebellion that remains that you still have, we still have that, why not take those things and ask the Father to throw it into the sea? And, and again, I don't mean to abuse the metaphor, but why not ask him to take the character of Christ and throw it into you? Fill me up with who Jesus is. Fill me up with his goodness. Fill me up with his love. Fill me up with his purity. We have the promise before the Father that we come before him dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Justification means that he has already declared us to be righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. It's as though he took us at the moment we trusted him and he took us all the way into the future to the day of judgment. And on that day, he pronounced his verdict and his verdict was identical to my son. And then he takes us back in time to that moment. And now we're going to live these years. And these days. And we think, I'm never going to get there. But we've already been there. That's what justification means. And as we continue to walk in him, he continues to be faithful. So don't fear the Father's pruning work. Welcome it. Look for the fruit of faith in Christ. That stubborn, magnetic Faith that draws us to him, that simply won't let us go. I know that some of you have suffered enormous pain, enormous agony, enormous disappointment. And you wrestle and at times you feel like you can't keep your head above water. But there is something within you and it's not of you. There is something within you that keeps looking to the cross of Christ. That's the heart of that fruit. That's the heart of that fruit. Aim your prayers at that mountain because all things are possible for God. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We ask that you would take these mountains of our old dead natures, cast them into the sea, and replace them with the character of Christ. Not as something artificial that we, we simply think before we go into a conversation, I need to act this way or act that way, but as something that is simply part of us, woven into us. I thank you that in the end, as the scripture says in Philippians 1, you are faithful and you will com complete the good work that you have begun in us. You won't stop halfway. You won't stop just short of the end. I give you praise for that. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not with us today. <coughs> and ask that your blessing would be upon them. That they would be reminded to look to Christ. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
we are dismissed.